Hello and welcome to Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I'm Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. For those of you who tune in regularly, you will already know that we release our podcasts in three different formats. We have our 10-minute lesson series. We take a policy topic and we just set out the key points that we think people really need to know in a short space of time, the sort of 8 to 12-minute period. We have our seminar series where we get the chance to listen back to some wonderful presentations we've had at previous events. And then we have our interview series where we chat to experts on a really wide range of policy topics. And this week, we're going to look at cities. Richard Florida, in his book called The New Urban Crisis, writes that our cities remain our best vehicles for identifying and solving our deepest economic and social problems. And Jane Jacobs writes way back in the 60s in her book, seminal book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, that cities have the capability of providing something for everybody only because and only when they are created by everybody. So to chat to me about the 15-minute city and the concept of the 15-minute city, what it is, also what it isn't, how it might work in an Irish context and what the challenges we might face in an Irish context is Professor Neve Moore-Cherry. She's Professor in the School of Geography in UCD and she's also Honorary Professor at the Bartlett School of Planning in University College. Her research is focused really on kind of understanding the governance, the impact of territorial policies on urban and regional outcomes. So she very kindly spent a, a wee while chatting to me about this whole concept. We hope you enjoy. As always, Neve, thank you so much for your time and your energy and your expertise, which is obviously why I, I contacted you. I might just begin then with a rough idea of your, your background, how you got into this topic, because it, it's not new, but it's not it's not old either. Because I was kind of thinking to myself, like when I grew up, the Dublin I grew up in was a 15 minute city. So it's a strange concept that we're kind of coming back to. So how, what was your path to 15 minute city? That's a really interesting question, Suzanne. So my main interest, so I'm a dove as well, but I grew up in the suburbs. And that's quite, a, I think that's quite an interesting thing because that's partly the reason why I'm interested in this mm. as well, because I see where I live in the suburbs is is, very, is is really, I suppose, a 15 minute neighborhood in a way, in that I can walk to the local supermarket. I've about a 15 minute walk to a Lewis stop. Because of COVID actually, this became quite, I suppose, increasingly relevant because I started walking my daughter to school because I wasn't commuting to work. So I kind of began to realize that all these things were in the neighborhood that I live in. But I also happened to be doing some work in Dublin 8 on a separate research project at the time. And one of the things that became really, really clear during the particularly the two kilometer lockdown was that people in different parts of the cities had very different experiences. And while I was really lucky in that there was a lot within my two kilometers and in a way, you could say my life didn't really change. It became a bit nicer, actually, in some ways because cars were removed and I realized I had a very walkable neighborhood. There were people living in the, the parts of Dublin 8 that we were working in on an urban greening project who really had no access to anything within their two kilometers or very limited access to things like green space, to things like the local supermarket or choice, all of those things, which really kind of brought it home to me. So in a way, it was a bit serendipitous because it was COVID. It was also, I suppose, my interest has always been in urban regeneration. And I am interested in a way in which we've regenerated, which is really not about regenerating for people who've traditionally lived in the city for a long time, but it's about attracting new people into the city and providing the resources maybe that they need. 
So it was kind of a combination of that background and that experience, COVID, and then being approached by a design studio in London who were asked to do this piece of research in Ireland to, I suppose, understand what the opportunities were. And I think change the narrative because in Ireland for such a long time, it's about being the the car and the suburb and the house. And our whole lives have become kind of extended and really thinking about how could we maybe live a bit more local, which is in a way what COVID was about, but that really showed up the kind of inequities and access to services that people need. This is going to be a conversation about cities and probably primarily Dublin. So apologies to everybody else. But, you know, the concept, as you said, the the, the 15 minute neighbourhood isn't going to be possible in very rural Ireland. But, you know, I'm conscious that across the world, statistics are starting to show that more and more and more of us will live in cities and that some of us will actually live in cities that haven't even been built yet. So I think that's quite interesting in terms of the planning that how we do this could make our lives in cities so because again I think as you said the ideal is you know retire to the countryside when actually it should be the opposite it should be as you age you should be moving back into cities to be able to have everything at your fingertips to be able to have uh, a a GP a shop uh, you know a creative outlet support networks at your fingertips. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Suzanne. And one of the things that's really kind of frightening, actually, is when you see some of the conspiracy theories around 15-minute city (laughs) and that it's all about locking people into their neighbourhoods. And Mm. it's absolutely not. You know, it's it's actually about trying to improve people's quality of life. So rather than people being forced into their cars, for example, to travel long distances because there is no choice, it's about saying, well, actually, if we provide these in your neighborhood, you don't have to get into your car. You can get into it if you want to, but you don't have to. And I think that's really important. And that's why there's a couple of things about the 15 minute city. I think that's quite interesting. So if you kind of go back to the history of cities and where they started, they were all 15 minute cities mm-hmm. because the idea was you were bringing people together and clustering them closer so you could provide work and you could provide homes close together. And then I guess as our technology changed and we got initially things like the railways and then cars, it then allowed that kind of sprawl and that spread to happen, which gives a certain level of freedom. But in in ways, it also takes away a lot of freedom because you're being forced into these long distances. So I think you're absolutely right. So I think we have an opportunity now in new planning to rethink, like, what is it that we want to do? What is the kind of city that we want to live in? What do we want to be spending our time on? Do we want to be stuck in our cars for two hours every day? Or do we actually want to free that time up to do something else that's of higher value or of more interest or things we get greater pleasure from? Um, so I think that's one thing. But then I think there's also an opportunity to rethink you know, the city that we already have. So this is about new neighbourhoods, but it's also maybe about how we could retrofit older areas that are maybe in need of, it's about how we do regeneration, let's say, so we need to be thinking not just about putting up the um, the office blocks or putting up the you know two hundredth hotel in the same neighbourhood or uh, loads and loads of student accommodation, but it's about saying what would a balanced neighbourhood here look like? What does the neighbourhood have right now? What might it need? And trying to get that balance a bit more into the city. So yes, of course you're going to maybe be living somewhere and travel for what geographers would call higher order goods, right? So you're prepared to travel a bit longer to maybe buy a sofa than you would be to buy mm-hmm. a loaf of bread. But you should be able to buy the loaf of bread in your local 
your local neighborhood store, go to see your local doctor. So it's really about getting the balance, um, but it's not about restricting people's freedoms. Because I, I must confess, like the conspiracy theory, I mean, we do have to, I suppose we do have to discuss it, <laughs> but I thought it was an extraordinary interpretation of what I thought was a good. You know, I saw 15 minutes of you as exactly that, as something where I can come come out my front door with my children. We have a park, we have access to a GP, we have a school, we might have a, a, a dance studio or a boxing club. And as you said, okay, we may have to go and travel a little bit to buy a fridge or a telly, but that our, our basic stuff would be on our doorsteps. To see it then as as something where, as you said, kind of like a Logan's run, you know what I mean? The, the, the crystal in the palm of your hand has got a flash red if you got as far as Stony Banner. I just thought it was an extraordinary thing. Could you maybe, are you able to kind of just chat about maybe the history of the concept of the 15-minute city? Sort of yeah, thing? absolutely. So I suppose in more recent times, it's really been associated by um, a French academic um, called Carlos Moreno, who's based at the Sorbonne in Paris. And he really, I suppose, in... The mid 2010, so around kind of 2015, 16, he started writing and publishing on this idea of, of, of the 15 minute city. And I think the reason it got such traction is because the mayor of Paris, Anne Hidalgo, really liked this idea and took it up. So it began to get a lot of political um, support. And that's really, I suppose, what brought it to people's attention. Mm -hmm. So here is this huge, sprawling global city that suddenly is thinking differently about urban planning. And, you know, people look to Paris for, you know, design and architecture and all those kinds of things. So I, I guess that's where the kind of more recent things um, got a bit more traction there. But it's actually a very old concept. So, you know, we could go back to the US in the, the kind of late 1960s. A, a woman called Jane Jacobs wrote this book called The Death and Life of Great American Cities. And this is the kind of city she was actually advocating as well at that time in terms of having people close together mixed use would bring vibrancy onto the streets, you know, street life, community, all of those things would thrive in this kind of environment. But you could go back even further. So in the 1920s, you had a couple of planners who were developing new suburbs um, called Perry and Ullman. And they basically had this idea of the neighborhood principle is what they called it. And they basically said that you should be building neighborhoods around the catchment of a primary school. So if you figure out how many children you need to make a school viable, then that's your catchment for putting in these basic services. So it, it's a real, it's a, I suppose the origins of it, you can trace back kind of almost 100 years, but it's really in less than the last decade that it's really got the traction that we see now. And is that linked, I wonder, to that increasing awareness of living sustainably that they sort of feed into each other? I think so. And I actually think that's why the conspiracy theories um, got some traction as well. Yeah. So I think absolutely, you know, if we think about living in this 15 minute city, it does promote the idea of active mobility. So it is saying it's about living a 15 minute cycle ride or walk away from services. Um, and it very much puts the emphasis on that active mobility or a 15 minute journey to public transport. So the car is much reduced in terms of, of what is needed. So there is that kind of climate action dimension to it in terms of these are much more sustainable modes of transport. Now, there are also issues with that because there are issues around equity and who can walk and who can cycle and all of those issues. And I fully, I fully acknowledge them. 
But I think it's that's partly the reason why then people people suddenly went, this is the same as a climate lockdown. And that's the term that's actually been used. Right. I think if we yeah, I think if we haven't had COVID and we haven't ha- hadn't had those restrictions, this probably wouldn't even have figured. But people suddenly equate, oh, the COVID lockdown, two kilometers and five kilometers, and five K is about the limit mm-hmm. um, of the 15 minute city. People suddenly go, this is just a climate lockdown and we're being locked down to take climate action and we're not going to be allowed to move out. So in a sense, um, rationally, it doesn't make any sense that these conspiracy theories would have come about. But I think it's because there's so much emphasis now on climate action, rightly. There's so much emphasis on sustainability. There's so much emphasis in the 15 minute city on active mobility that the whole thing has just got become a bit confused. And you have to blame policymakers, too. So. In the UK, they're introducing these um, low traffic uh, neighborhoods, which are a good thing if they're done properly. But a lot of this is to do with reducing air pollution and so on. So there is these ultra low emission zones where you have to pay a lot of money mm-hmm. to move in and out of, of neighborhoods. And this is going to be extended in London. You have these low traffic neighborhoods that are being introduced in Oxford. And all of these other things are being conflated with the 15 minute city and they are com- they may have some of some similarities, but they are not the 15 minute city. And I think that's where the conspiracy theories are really coming from. But I'm conscious of that, like the, the pollution. I mean, you have children dying in the UK and mm. on their death certificates, young children dying because of air pollution. Mm. So that would have been my direction of travel, as they like to say, when I think of, you know, reducing air pollution. It's because of, of the damage that it does, as opposed to um, a restriction on our on our movements. I mean, one of the challenges for, yeah, for Ireland, because I'm kind of conscious, we don't seem to like high density housing. We don't seem to do it well. And does the 15 minute city require that we live quite dense? Is, is that a challenge for us mentally? Do you think? Yeah. I, th- I think it is. And I think it's because we don't have a good history with mm. high density living. And I think we're repeating that poor history with high density living right now. So the neighborhood that I live in would be primarily kind of two story houses, traditional kind of suburban houses. And on one side, directly facing these houses, they put in t- there's, there's kind of 15 story apartment blocks gone in. And of course, you can imagine that in, in a neighborhood, the kind of overshadowing, blocking light blocking sunlight, all of those things into people's houses, have people up in arms about this kind of development. And I think that's, I think people are right to be up in arms about that, because to me, that is not what we should be doing. Mm. It's far too high, far too dense, um, and and you're not going to get people's buy-in by doing that. But if we look at somewhere like, let's take Paris again, for example, the kind of average, average building height in Paris is between six and eight stories. So that's what we might call like both medium density. In an Irish context, that is high density. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where we need to be going. So we don't need tower blocks. We don't have a good history with them. We have a really, really poor impression of them. The perception, the Irish mindset is not a 15 story tower blocks. But I think we could easily go from our, our kind of our two story semi D's or terraced houses. We could certainly move to looking at between four and six stories quite easily. And if we were to do that, we would begin to kind of shift people's mindset. And yes, we probably do need to end up at slightly higher density than that. But I think it's a process. I think it's a cultural process. I think it also requires us to understand that by living in a slightly higher density um, neighborhood, we are 
kind of losing on the one side, as in we're losing some of our kind of private space, if you like, because because we're becoming in, into more shared spaces, but we should be gaining on the other side. So we need to be making sure that when we do build these these kind of slightly higher density neighborhoods, that we're also putting in the, ser the services for people mm -hmm. that make that worthwhile. So we're building up so we're not sprawling. Mm -hmm. um, and by doing that, we save green space so we can have more local parks, pocket parks, you know, amenity spaces, playgrounds, whatever it is. So you're trading you're trading off all the time between kind of losing space by building low rise or gaining access to that public space by going a little bit higher. So you're absolutely right. It's a cultural shift that's needed. Yeah. But I think the policymakers and the planners need to give a lot more credence to the power of kind of perception and mindset and actually work and bring people along with them rather than just kind of dropping these kind of 10 to 15 story tower blocks in where they really don't fit. Six to eight stories is is around the maximum for sustainability. And I was conscious of the fire that we had in the in Blanchardstown. Mm -hmm. So there's a hotel which has apartment blocks sort of built into it and the ladders don't go high enough. Yeah. So it, it's a conversation about it's the joined up thing, it's the joined up thinking all the time, isn't it? That if six to eight floors is sus more sustainable environmentally in terms of the energy it takes to bring things up and the energy it takes to bring things down and then factoring in, well, how safe are you in, in exactly. somewhere if the ladder doesn't actually, if there's no ladders that go to the 15th floor. So, I mean, yeah, I think that it's going to be a challenge and I suppose it's a challenge when it's a city of hotel and student departments as well, when, when you've mentioned that it's not a city anymore for people to live in and the longer I think the last 10 years definitely we've got as much dereliction as we did in the 80s yeah yeah um, I think that's interesting actually and I was reading something the other day as well where they they were actually saying that they the kind of the vacancy rate is it's higher so we have all these kind of lovely traditional houses that are actually vacant and if they were repurposed um, and they were brought back into reuse. And I know the government has that new scheme to, you know, repurpose a, a derelict property, but it's it's not enough for, you know, it's 30,000 doesn't go anywhere when you're trying to repurpose um, a property. So I think it's, it is that idea of we need that joined up thinking and we need to be asking the question, what kind of a city do we want to live in? So do we want a living city? Yeah, and I think that's key. Like I'm, I've been reading those incredible books there Joseph Brady, Ruth McManus, the history of building of Dublin. And it's up because even like they, they start from about the 1890s onwards and they break it up into sort of 20, 30 year blocks. And some of it could have been written yesterday. Yeah, so yeah. in the 1890s, there's a discussion. Do we build houses or do we build flats? Do we build in the city? Do we build outside of the city? And do we charge full economic rent or do we charge subsidised rent? And if we charge subsidised rent, who foots the bill for the difference? And I was yeah. like, whoa, this could have been written 20 minutes ago. <laughs> we're still having the same conversation. But they were so conscious again of, because again, you've got you've got these little pockets of housing estates sort of along the quays. You've got, you know, so sort of social housing all the way along the city quays there, which I think is is wonderful because it it puts families and people who live in the city right in the heart of the city. But they were very conscious of needing to have workers close to their jobs. And when yeah. when those social those social housing estates were moved out to places like Crumlin and Cabra and Marino, that was a key thing. Was were, were the transport links available for them? You know, to get these yeah. people in into town to to their jobs. 
So it's fascinating that I sometimes wonder with all of, we can put somebody on the moon and yet we still can't figure out how to build a suburb properly. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think what's really interesting is like when you think about the traditional building of the city, it is it was about workers and and their jobs being close together. And I I often say this to people, we have to we have to crack that nutshell before we're actually going to even re- resolve any of the transport issues in Dublin. So so where I live is is quite close to so I live in, in Ballantyre, which so you're coming off the M50 junction there at Junction 13 and cars blow off there to Dundrum and other parts of, of, of Dublin there. And the really, really nice thing about the lockdown was every people were working at home. So there was no traffic coming off. And I was thinking, this just shows now that this neighborhood is just full of through flow. So this is cars that are just literally flowing because we can't figure out how to get people's jobs close to where they live. And, and that really struck me that we are not going to change the traffic issues in Dublin. We're not going to get our emissions down unless we actually think really sensibly about co-locating employment and, and residences. And like you said, we did it before, like we did it in the 19th century. So you have all those railway cottages that were located close to the railway stations, you know, around kind of Sheriff Street, North Wall, then again, around kind of Tara Street. So we did it before. So we should be able to do it again. And then around Inchicore, I'm thinking about. And when we suburbanized, we, we generally suburbanized things like factories because they were taking up a lot of space, so cheaper land in the suburbs. That's not the case anymore. And that's not the kind of employment we have anymore. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, they were moved out in a way. Some of those industries were moved out. If you think about what's out around now, the kind of Navin Road and, and that or the, the Nace Road and kind of some of the factories that are that are out there, you kind of go like they're not really what the economy of the city is about anymore. There's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't be able to co-locate employment and residences. Yeah. Um, together now we're not talking about belting factories mm-hmm. we're talking about you know office buildings that could be co-located with with new housing absolutely easily and you, you begin to bridge the gap but you have to make sure that your housing is this is where I think this is the real crux of it is what kind of housing and who for so this is about mixed tenure this is about intergenerational housing this is about keeping the older people in the neighborhood and, and allowing people to age um, within the city as well, rather than feeling they have to go somewhere. And I think if you have that kind of vibrancy, you, you almost get that sense of communities beginning to look after themselves again, because that's what Dublin was really good at traditionally. If you think about, you know, stories of Dublin in the 1940s and 50s, people looked after each other. They lived close together. There was a sense of community. And that's something I think that we've really lost because of the kind of planning and the kind of sprawl that the city has had over time. When you look at those social housing estates, single tenure social housing estates, so you had houses, a block of shops, you had old folks flats dotted round as well, so that you moved into your three bedroom terrace, you had your babies, your babies left, and then, you know, maybe it was just you on your own or you and your partner or whatever, you weren't able for the stairs. You only had to move two streets over so you yeah. still had the same church you still had the same shop you still had the same post office people who noticed that you weren't I didn't see Mary you know the last two days anybody know where she is as you said there was an acknowledgement that well where do you go when your housing needs increase mm-hmm. or you know or, or decrease that you were still able to age in place keeps us safer for longer and I appreciate we weren't living as long 
when these houses were built, but at the same time, the same concept should apply. And I'm conscious as well that we've kind of discussed sort of the economic bit, but there's education and health. Like, again, when I was growing up in Dublin, we had city centre hospitals. We had, I think the Gerbers was probably closed. Richmond was definitely open. The Adelaide was open. And they all closed and relocated out to Beaumont. They relocated out to Tala. So you had this sort of hollowing out of, of amenities and um and again even for, for Temple Street, like Crumlin can be a bit of a trek with a sick child. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that there's a new children's hospital, but that's a whole different podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> that one could take a long time. <laughs> but things like get, you know, access to education and health, you could you could see that so clearly that this was putting people out into the suburbs and then charging them three quid an hour to park. Which was, I don't know. I mean, that's a again another whole conversation. But that impacts on on what we do in the city and how we access certain things. Even James Street isn't St James isn't isn't the easiest thing to get to. It's still slightly suburban. So yeah, things like education and health they're not they're not on our doorstep anymore either. That's a deliberate planning decision. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I mean, I could talk for hours about kind of, you know, dysfunctional governance. And I actually think that's a big part of it. So this is these are the kind of outcomes we get when we don't have our, I suppose, our governance system set up set up correctly. So at the moment we have planners planning, but absolutely no power of kind of implementation or forcing particular things. So they're literally kind of saying this is ideally what we'd like. And then developers coming and looking for individual planning permissions. And then we have kind of the Department of Health doing their thing and we have uh, the Department of Education doing their thing. And it's like a big surprise all of a sudden when a brand new housing estate is built and people are screaming for a school and the Department of Education don't know about it. So we have this kind of disconnection. And I think in other jurisdictions, um, local authorities are much more connected. So things like social care and education are under the remit of of the local authorities in the UK. Now, there's good there's there's. You know, I'm not saying it's the perfect system because clearly it's not based on things we see on the news at the moment. But at least there's some level of connection between planning. So it's not just about building the houses or building the offices, that the, the kind of the idea of a neighborhood is taken in the round and these decisions are taken together so that there is enough capacity for school places because an awful lot of the traffic we see on the road as well. I noticed it even this morning coming in with the secondary schools off the volume of traffic has just reduced significantly. So if we could break that cycle of um, having to drive, having to get to these basic things like school every day. Also, I think investment in primary care, and I know this is the way that the, you know, the health system in Ireland wants to move, but we need to be thinking, so we've kind of gone way beyond the 15 minute city here to think about all of this is really important because you've got to think about this in the round. We've got primary care, which should be a really important part of any kind of 15 minute neighborhood. But you can't have a primary care center if you can't recruit enough doctors. So we need to be thinking about that everything kind of much more holistically. So and I think that's a big thing, even in established neighborhoods right now, people can't access healthcare because GPs aren't taking on any more patients because there aren't enough GPs. So it's, it's this kind of, I would say, whole of government thinking, this kind of holistic approach to, as a society, what way do we want to live? And what do we need to do to get there? Because the fact that it's all connected, I just think is so important. My son is in secondary school and they have reduced, they had reduced options going into secondary school for languages because they couldn't get the teachers. 
and they have reduced options now for leaving cert because they can't get the, the teachers so that he can't do certain subjects. That's not because of a lack of teachers. That's because nobody can afford to work as a teacher and live close by. So exactly. it, it, it's all of those things. So as you said, what what kind of a city do we want to live in? What kind of a country do we want to live in? And it has to be one where that you can actually afford to live and it's not 40% or 50% of, of your wages. There, as you said, that's why there, those gaps are there. It's not that we lack professional qualified staff. If they can't afford to live anywhere, then it, it's not going to happen. The other thing I think that kind of fascinates me as well about the, the, the city is that we do seem to be good in Dublin at providing things like green spaces and access to cultural activities, but they all seem to cost money. And I could see it like the even Dublin nightlife, which I won't confess to be that clued into anymore. But I mean, a stat I found was four and five Irish nightclubs have shut since 2000. So mm-hmm. all of those things factor into now you might not want a nightclub within your 15 minute route. But, you know, if if it's student housing or something like that, you know, you, you do need access to cultural activities and you do need access to after dark, I think, you know, sort of yeah. late night um. So it's just, again, we just seem to be hollowing all of that out as well. Yeah, that, that's really true. And what's what's kind of interesting, I think, is that we actually had one of our students a couple of years ago map, map out all of the nighttime economy, if you like, mm-hmm. facilities that had all disappeared. Um, and the idea of, of having to pay for everything, I think, is something that's been challenged increasingly. I, I met a couple of Brazilian students that were here and they just couldn't get over the fact that there's nowhere you can just go and hang out in Dublin so as a young person you know a late teen early 20s if you're hanging out you're obviously a troublemaker so there's there's all these kind of architectural design features and then security that will just move you on um, rather than actively creating spaces for people to be able to hang out so so they say to me you know well we're here and we're you know on you know, with part-time jobs and they're fairly low incomes, we can't afford necessarily to go out, but we just want somewhere that we can be in the city. And I think that's really important. So anywhere that you you go now, you know, you it's either a restaurant or it's a pub or a co- coffee shop, you have to pay to sit in the city. Yeah. And to me, that is fundamentally wrong. There should be um, a commons, there should be pl- somewhere that where we can actually kind of gather without this kind of stigmatization that you're obviously up to trouble or you're anti-social behavior um, and we haven't got the right conditions in place to do that so I think that's exclusionary so we're saying you can come to the city if you have disposable income if you have money that you can spend consuming but you can't just come to enjoy your city um, and I think that's that's something that we need really need to grapple with and there's a growing demand for it I think as as Dublin becomes more multicultural, we have more people coming to the city who, who for, for them, this kind of idea of public space and being, you know, living your life on the street is actually part of their culture as well. And I think there is going to be a big push for this, a kind of a bottom up push. I can kind of see it coming already and kind of diversifying what we're doing with our city. So I, I happen to be I don't go into the city very much, but I happened to be in town last week and I just I felt like I was the only non-tourist walking around the part of town I was in. And that's great for the economy of the city. You know, you're bringing in tourists, you're, you know, the restaurants are thriving and all of that. But actually what happens when somewhere else becomes the kind of tourist flavor of the month? What have we got left in our city? Because like you say, we're kind of hollowing out these other these other ideas. 
And, you know, some cities like London have um, introduced the nightmare. So the mayor for London, you know, whose responsibility is the nighttime economy and doing that and doing that well. So it's not just about saying the nightclubs can stay open till six o'clock in the morning and only serve drink till whatever time. It's actually about thinking more broadly about the kind of facilities and culture and, and all of those things. Dublin was full of theatres in the 40s and 50s, full of cinemas. My mum and dad, you know, would have been kind of going out together in Dublin in the, the kind of 1960s and the stories they tell about, you know, going to the cinema or going for a cup of tea somewhere, whatever, all of those kind of things are, are gone. I think we really, it's a wake up call for us actually that we really need to be rethinking what we're prioritising when we're planning the city and it can't all come down to who has the deepest pockets and the most influence. And yeah. um, I've always thought like there's nowhere to sit in Dublin city centre for free, nowhere. And I just think, as you said, as we diversify as a city, as we have more and more cultures that don't have alcohol as the centre of their, their, their socialising, but still want to socialise. How yeah. do we do that now? I, I, I may get a pile on for this, but I did read somewhere recently and it really resonated with me. Whoever's in charge of Dublin city obviously hates the city and everybody who lives in it. And I thought, okay, now it makes sense because it is geared though towards the tourist. So it's, when you look at the, we've had two or three theatres, we've had Andrews Lane and the Tivoli both torn down in the last while and hotels put in their place. So it, it is, it's this, it's this thing of, if you live here, what is there for you to do? So you can come here for the weekend and you can do the top 10 things. And that's brilliant. And that's fantastic. And it's great to see that you said you're in the city and all these different accents and all of these different languages as you're walking through town. It's brilliant. It's really vibrant. But in and out of the city during COVID lockdown, I would be walking around and there might be three people or four people. And so if we were over with that over reliance on, on, on tourism, who's the city for? It goes back to that question, really, isn't it? Who is the city for? One thing I suppose that, that I kind of find interesting as well is we have four separate councils for Dublin that operate independently. And they're ultimately, again, at the mercy of national government decision making. Does that make things really I, I, just something really struck me in, in the Joseph Brady and Ruth McManus books, where I think, say, one one Dublin council was thinking of widening a road, putting in a cycle path. And yet when it comes up against the limits of its council, if the next council doesn't take it on, what you've got is this road widening psychopath scheme that could stop as as soon as you cross over into either Fingal or South Dublin Council. It's like stuff like that doesn't really make sense, you know. So you could have yeah. a plan, but if it doesn't join up then with and I guess with the borders conversation is quite interesting because of things like COVID that had no respect for borders, yeah. uh, even within Dublin City, what I what I think of as, as Dublin as a whole has four separate four separate local authorities who are, may well be doing four separate things and may well have four separate concepts of of what they see as a 15-minute city. I think Dublin City Council have started to weave the concept into some of their their plans, but it'll remain to see what that actually means. Yeah, I think you're right. And I mean we had one, we had Dublin Corporation until 1991. Yeah. And then then we were split um, into into four areas. And I think traditionally, I mean, I think since 1991, there has you're absolutely right. There is a disconnection in planning. So each of the local authorities um, will plan for their area and they'll do what's best for their area. But nobody's looking at what's best for Dublin. 
and actually this is kind of a big focus of, of a lot of the research I've been doing over the last few years is, is looking at how do we join it up of what is this this kind of dysfunction that we see in the Irish system that we don't necessarily see in other contexts. In other contexts, a city of the scale of Dublin would have a metropolitan mayor. It would just be, that would just be it. And this person would be in charge of coordinating and I suppose representing Dublin, because again, I think this is, again, this would be another kind of bugbearer thing that's come out of a lot of the work that, that I've been doing over the last few years is that, who do you go to if you wanted somebody who speaks for Dublin? There's no visible person. And we've never had like a minister for Dublin, given the scale of the city in terms of the country. We've had a minister for rural affairs for decades. We've never had a minister for urban affairs or somebody to think about cities and, and urban life. And I think that's partly that's a cultural thing. That's not giving up that kind of thing that, well, Ireland is traditionally this rural place. Um, um, it's actually not anymore. We have much more of our population living in, in urban centres. And that's not to disregard rural areas. Um, all of my, my family on both sides came from rural areas. My husband's family still live in, in a rural area. But it's to say that we need a bit of balance here. We need a bit of a reality check that actually we need a real focus on the urban environment. Dublin is a particular case in point. And again, in the research that we've done, there's a lot of this kind of Dublin versus the rest mentality that mm -hmm. has come up in terms of politics and decision making and how decisions get made and who makes them. But actually, Dublin does need somebody to speak for it because it is this large entity. And what you find is the way in which funding is allocated and all of those issues, the, the local authorities start competing with one another. So the nonsense is that you have South Dublin County Council competing with, I suppose, let's say Fingal County Council for a big shopping centre development, let's just say, rather than go and actually what's happening here. So if you look, I mean, if you look logically at, at Dublin and, and we'll take the, the outer bit of Dublin rather than the inner city as an example, like logically, there is absolutely no reason why Blanchardstown and Liffey Valley were both built. They're big, they're regional scale shopping centres. The only explanation is that Liffey Valley is on one side of the Liffey and Blanchardstown is on the other side of the Liffey and they're in two different local authority areas. So those local authorities in efforts and, and their admirable efforts to try and raise revenue, the only way they can do that is through development levies and commercial rates. So, of course, they're not going to go, you know, Fingal's not going to go, South Dublin, you can have it. Yeah. Because it's not in their interest to do that. So, hence, you get two large-scale shopping centres in very, very close proximity. And it's that kind of thinking that you have this kind of competitiveness between the local authorities when actually what they should be doing is cooperating. And I think it kind of a, a reason for hope I suppose, mm -hmm. is the, the last couple of years that there's been a metropolitan area plan developed for Dublin by the at the regional level, so by the Eastern and Midland Regional Assembly, and their job is to coordinate. So they have actually done quite a good job in the last, I would say, three to five years in going, hang on a second here, we have to coordinate at the regional scale for things like climate action, for things like transport infrastructure. So they are they are looking at Dublin as a whole and even beyond, you know, the four counties, just looking at kind of Kildare and Meath and Wicklow, mm -hmm. which Dublin now spills into and going, what does the city need at this regional scale to make it work? What is the transport infrastructure needs? And then trying to get those the, the local authorities and people like the NTA and Transport Infrastructure Ireland all to come together and to try and think in this more cooperative way. But I think that's that's going to take a big kind of cultural shift. It's going to take a big shift in how we allocate funding and resources in order to make it 
I suppose to give an incentive for cooperation rather than competition to really make the best city that we can get. It's funny when you're just talking about the NTA there and things like Dublin Bus, they can't get staff. <clears throat> so they have these amazing plans for 2023 and they are stuck because they can only progress them to a certain point because they can't get staff. And the reason that they can't get staff is because there's nowhere for people to live. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, so you're kind of constantly going back to this thing of, uh, I was thinking of that ad, wasn't it, where the, the tourists are asking for directions to the airport and the guy goes, well, I wouldn't start from here anyway. But there's, exactly. that, <laughs> there's a certain sense of that, of, of, you know, as you said, oh, like, okay, well, we need to get the jobs, but then we need to get the houses, but we need to get the the jobs for the houses and the houses for the jobs and, and all of that kind of piece yeah. connected up. Are there, I mean, we talk about Dublin, I suppose, but we do have, we do begrudgingly will admit that there are other Irish cities. <laughs> my, my, my CEO is from Cork, so wait till he listens to this one. But the likes of Cork and Galway and Limerick and Waterford and, and, and if, you know, if we do like a shared island approach, we've got mm. Belfast and, and so on, that like those cities are smaller. Would, would they be likely to, I mean, is there any talk in, in anywhere else in Ireland of, of looking at a 15 minute city for Cork or Galway or Limerick? Or do we have anybody who's actively trying to look at the approach? Yeah, we do actually, and it's it's a great question. Um, so in the four other cities in the Republic, um, there are these metropolitan area spatial plans that I mentioned for Dublin that they have been developed for the other four cities as well. Particularly, I would say the the, the southern area, so Limerick, Cork, and Waterford, those that 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 regional area, the southern regional um assembly looks after that area. And they've been very proactive in this space. So if you look at their regional strategy, what they have is the concept of the 10 minute town actually right at the center. So 10 minute town, 15 minute city, whatever you, yeah. you want. It's the same idea essentially. And they've actually had some European funding to do some kind of pilot case studies on kind of 10 minute towns in, in smaller urban centers um, in the Southern regional um, area. But last year, I did a little bit of work looking at the potential of Waterford as a 15 minute city. So it's one of our, our the smallest cities on the island, but actually, I think the one with quite a lot of potential, because in Waterford, there are there are quite a lot of opportunities for kind of redevelopment. And I think there's there's almost like potentially an alignment of the stars in Waterford where you have a regional authority that's actually very into this idea, the 10 minute town, the 15 minute city. And you actually have, for example, on the north docks of in, in Waterford um, along the river, there's a very, very large former industrial site, a brownfield site that's ripe for development. And the Land Development Agency are now in there helping to work, uh, helping to kind of progress the project. You have the, the Southern Regional Assembly who are really pushing this idea of kind of 10 minute towns and so on. And it's a, if you like, it's a blank slate, that site. There's no existing, well, at least there's very limited existing housing kind of in that area. So there's an opportunity to do something. It's a very, very big space, an opportunity to do something really interesting, you know, frontage onto the river, really nice access to kind of the greenways. So really nice kind of urban environment there and this opportunity. And they're part of the development is going to be a sustainable um, transport hub. So they're, they're thinking about this at the heart of it. So for me, having looked at Waterford, 
I think there's massive potential there in terms of that large site, but also then smaller sites through the city where it wouldn't be this dramatic 15 minute city. But what you could do is just bring more vibrancy in by by redeveloping these infill sites, if you like, these smaller areas um, throughout the city, which will just bring more footfall into the city and kind of raise the, the whole vibrancy and I suppose the, the kind of vitality or viability of, of the city itself. So for me, I would say Waterford is the one to watch. OK, OK, interesting. <laughs> What's this space? But I, I think it's, it's good to it's good to end on, as you said, something positive because I at the core of this is the public and common good isn't it absolutely yeah absolutely yeah. this is about making people's quality of life even better yeah brilliant thank you so much that's great Lovely. thank you Suzanne thank you for listening to this podcast I hope you got something out of it if you have any ideas for future conversations any topics that you'd like us to cover please feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie with your suggestions until next time stay safe